It's good to see everyone this morning. It's good to see some of you back. You've been gone through for a few weeks and you've come back with these big old slugs under your noses. They're going to go and shave those off pretty soon, huh? I'm talking about moustaches, by the way. It just looks like a... Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay, we're going to dive into God's Word this morning, and we're in Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Luke 22, kicking off in verse 63. You can, you can grab these blad, blad, black hardback Bibles on the ends of the pews. You can get that, that open on your phone, or if you bought your own Bible, Luke 22, kicking off in verse 63 this morning. Now, Quince and I got married almost seven years ago, and we moved into our very her first uh, home together. And it was a tiny two-room apartment in Chicago. It was flat, or apartment 5A, and it was in a building called the Jenkins Hall. And now the Jenkins Hall was owned by the university, and that was reserved for mainly married students. So it's those people who came to the university who were married, who got married while they were there. So this building was full of couples in their 20s and 30s and early 40s who were students. So you know what that means? In this building, there's going to be a lot of stressed out students. There's going to be a lot, a lot of anxious faces trying to get all the projects and papers done. But what it also means about this building is that there is going to be a lot of babies. They, they, were, they were all over the place in this building, everywhere. Now, I spent a lot of time with some of the guys in this building, and we, we kind of built a bit of camaraderie, a bit of a brotherhood. We would, we'd be on the same football team together. We would, we would go play pool together. We would cook together, pray together, share lives together, because there was so much in common. And every now and again in this, this group of guys, one of them would say, my wife's pregnant, we're expecting... And, and you'd get such different reactions or different responses within these guys' lives. So, so you'd have anything from, hey, my wife's pregnant. We want to celebrate this. There's a, there's a high five. There's a hug. Yeah, that's great. And yet sometimes these guys would do nothing to prepare for the arrival of the baby. So some of us would be like, are you going to think about buying a car seat at some point? Are you going to think about buying a, the baby's bed? Are you going to start planning? The kind of the mentality was, yes, celebrate this, but I don't really want to face the implications and, and the, the consequences of becoming a parent. And then there was the other side of the, the scale. They'd have some guys who you could tell by the look in their eyes that it was just terrifying. They were so scared, so anxious that this news that had been dropped into their lives, they just didn't know how to handle it. So they were anxious, they were worrying, they were concerned, they couldn't think straight. Forget about trying to get the degree finished. They were just so caught up on this. But I had one friend and I used to love his reaction to the news that his wife was expecting. I loved it because it began with a sense of celebration a sense of rejoicing. And he say, you know what, James, at this stage of the pre- pregnancy, there's a lot of uncertainties. This life is very fragile right now, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to thank the Lord. I'm going to pray for this life. We're going to celebrate it because it is a human life and it must be celebrated. We will rejoice in it. But then after that, he would say, right, now what things do I have to get in place? What do I need to change my work hours? Do I need to be more available? How do I change my classes? Am I changing our budget and the finances to include this new family member? Why did I like his response? Because he celebrated at that good news. He celebrated at that life-changing situation and then worked out the implications and the ripples and the reverberations throughout his life. 
Now, now we, th- we know that's true across life. When we get a li- piece of life-changing news, when, when, when something good, something bad, something comes into our life that completely shatters how life is done, we know it's going to have a ripple effect in the rest of our lives. It's like dropping a stone into the pond of our lives and the ripples just kind of emanate or flow out from that piece of news. Why did I love his response? Because he faced the good news and saw the implications of it. Now you've got to hear that this morning. He heard that good news. He heard that life-changing statement and he saw the consequences. And he was willing to face the ripples that came from that life-changing news. Now this morning, what we're going to see is Jesus in his last few hours before he goes to the cross. And we're going to see Jesus standing before three very, very different authorities. They react to him in a completely different way. But there's something common in each of them. Is that they're standing before Jesus and they're faced with the claim of his lordship. They're faced with the claim that he's the son of God. He's the king of the Jews. He's the Christ that they've been waiting for. Now each reaction is radically different. But they hear the same piece of news. The same stone is dropped into the pond of their life. Yet they reject him. They won't want anything to do with him. They turn the cold shoulder, give the blind eye. Why? Because they don't want to face the ripples, the consequences, the implications that emanate from the news that Jesus is the Son of God. So here's where we're going to head this morning. I want to set the scene. We'll do a bit of groundwork in the first couple of verses. Then what I want us to do is look at each of these authorities in turn and kind of look at their responses to Jesus and ask the question, how are they responding Why are they responding like that? And they want us to step back in light of looking at those three authorities and say, what does that mean for us? What has the response and the reaction of these authorities got anything to do with people like you and me who usually feel a million miles away from this kind of stuff? How how can we see how this influences the authorities' reaction, says anything into our lives? So let's set the scene here, verse 63 to 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Look at that first verse here. We have, they were holding him, but they were mocking and they were beating him. This word in the original language is, it gives the sense that there was a, a continuous nature to the beating and the mocking, suggesting this was going on for a long time. Jesus doesn't deserve this kind of stuff. Now, there's a huge irony in this opening scene right here of Jesus mocking. Because Luke has built this incredible picture throughout the first 22 chapters of this gospel of a very beautiful, loving, compassionate, perfect picture of Jesus Christ, the portrait of Jesus, there is nothing within his life to incriminate him. There's been nothing but healing, compassion, care, teaching, demonstrating a love for the outsiders. There is nothing. He has not stepped out of line. That's the picture that Luke paints for us. And yet what we're finding is the man who least deserves the mockery and the beating is the one who's receiving it. It doesn't seem to match. You know when you're watching those, uh, the, uh, some of those the war movies and, and you get you know, like a battle scene and it's quite violent and it's quite bloody. You know, like, like people are being shot and there's blood everywhere and limbs and stuff. And, it, and it's all very chaotic in the scene. And then, and then there's the, 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 the filmmakers put a very serene class, classical piece over the top. 
You know, it doesn't quite match. You know, there'll be all this chaos going on in the shot, and yet you might have like a, a piano concerto or Mozart or Beethoven over the back. You just kind of think, that doesn't fit. Now, in cinema, you call that contrapuntal sound, where, where, where the scene doesn't fit the music. And you just kind of think, well, it kind of works, but they don't fit. I think we're seeing exactly the same thing going on in here. Throughout the Gospels, what we've had is this portrait of Jesus Christ and paints that picture. And now we're seeing him getting beaten and mocked and blasphemed. And the irony it hits this, this peak in Jesus' life when those who are hitting him and blindfolding him say, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Of course, Jesus knows who struck him. He doesn't say it, but you know, in his mind, it's, yeah, I know you. I know you struck me. I know who you are. I know your name. I know the numbers of hairs on your head. I know how many days you've lived. I know your joys. I know your pains. I know your deepest insecurities. I know your fears. I know everything about you. I know you're getting up. I know you're laying down. I saw you when you were being intricately woven in your mother's womb. I know you. And before a word is on your mouth, before it falls from your lips, I know it altogether. I know who struck me. I know. But there's the irony here. They're not going to get it. They're not going to see it, even if he does give the name away. But then Jesus is led before these three authorities. How do they respond to him? Let's have a look here in verse 66. When, Jesus, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, then tell us. Well, we need to ask the question here, who are the council? Who are these people? Because we've got the chief priests and the scribes, that's the elders, leading Jesus before the council. Now, the council are going to be this famous group of religious leaders. They're called the Sanhedrin sometimes. So it's 71 high-powered, the high and mighty of the Jewish faith, collecting together to preside or have that tight-fisted control over the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin is the controlling bunch within the religious scene of this area in this day. Sanhedrin have that tight-fisted control. So Jesus is dragged before them, and the accusation or the question is right there, if you are the Christ, then just tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you, won't, you will not answer. So it's kind of like, there's no point saying anything, because you won't hear me anyway. Verse 66, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated on the right hand of the power of God. Son of Man is this, this cosmic judge character we find in Daniel chapter 7. The Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and the scribes, they're going to know it well. So they're saying, hang on a second, we know this Son of Man character. We know he's the Son of God. We know we're expecting him. We know there's this Savior coming. Are you saying that you're him? Look at verse 70. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? Is that what you're actually saying, Jesus? Are you him? And he said to them, you say that I am. Essentially, you said it, not me. It came out of your mouth. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from our own lips. Now look at the reaction of the council. This is a group of people who have that heavy-handed oversight over the Jewish scene of the day. These are the guys who call the shots. These are the guys who control. 
These are the guys who can mediate and manipulate anything they like. These are the guys who are authority over the people and they are their own authority. And yet their reaction to Jesus' claim as the Son of God is aggressive. It's hostile. The reaction is antagonistic towards Jesus. They, 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 they don't seem to see that he's the Son of God, so they're responding in frustration, bitterness. They're all caught up on his claim that he's the Son of God. Why? Why are they reacting like this? Well, I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that they're in control. These guys are the authority. And the ripple of Jesus being the Son of God, the, one of the ripples is that they would have to give up that kind of control. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine you come to the end of the financial year and you're setting up your finances for the next year. And so you say to yourself, this budget is going to be way tighter than any budget I've ever done before. I'm going to do it down to the penny. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do uh, this chunk of my wages and my income is going to go to that bill and that bill and that bill. Here's the money that I'm setting aside for my car. Here's the money that I'm going to set aside for my giving. Here's the money that I'm going to set aside for uh, my holiday. Here's the money I'm going to set aside for savings. Every single penny is accounted for. And I have a good good check on all of this. Now imagine uh, 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 something comes into your life during that year that you didn't expect. So a a big expense that didn't fit your budget and you didn't want to break free from the budget? What's your reaction? If you're anything like me, you're going to be like, oh, I thought I had this figured out. I thought I had every single penny sorted and then that financial, uh, that, that, that thing came in that I wasn't expecting and it took my money away. How am I going to feel? I'm a bit frustrated. I'm going to be a bit, uh, you know, a bit angry about this. Maybe even if it's a big one, a little bit bitter. I didn't see that coming. Why am I going to be upset? Because I thought I had a good control over this. What's happening with the council? Jesus comes in, and if he's the son of God, then he is in control. He has authority over them. So he walks in, and he challenges their control. What's the response? Aggression. They're going to be hostile and antagonistic towards Jesus. But then he's dragged before the second authority. Let's read this in chapter 23, verse 1. And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, we need to ask the question right here. Okay, we get who the council is. That controlling bunch who act aggressively. Who's Pilate? Okay, over the Roman Empire, you're going to have Caesar. We know about all the Caesars in history. But Caesar's going to kind of delegate some of his authority out to people who can oversee subsections of the Roman Empire. And so they would just then preside over these peoples. And and number one, the top thing on their job description is to maintain the peace. That's what they have to do. Now, Rome is grounded on a philosophy in these days, something called Pax Romana, translated the peace of Rome. So that's huge. Number one on Pilate's job description, fulfill Pax Romana. Make sure everyone's happy. Make sure there's peace. Make sure any uprisings get squashed immediately. Just make sure everybody is kept happy. You keep your reputation intact and you must maintain social order. That's what Pilate has to do. So Jesus is dragged before Pilate, the man who is the quintessential people pleaser. That's what he, that's what he has to do. And so then they level the claim at him. Now really interesting about these Jewish religious leaders, they're supposed to hate the Romans. But they're so bent on incriminating Jesus that they're saying, he's saying we don't have to give to Caesar. 
So there's a duplicity, there's a double-mindedness going on in this aggressive Jewish mob against Jesus. And then what we find is a passivity from Pilate. Look at verse 3. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Yet again, it came out of your mouth. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in him. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So Jesus is facing the aggression from the Jewish religious leaders again. Now he's getting passivity from the Roman leader, Pontius Pilate. But he wants to keep the peace. So what on earth is he going to do? Well, number one, he's going to have to remain passive to the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. He can't face the claim, Jesus being the Son of God. Because you know what that means? It means he can't keep people happy. The witness of Jesus is making people upset right here. And he needs to do something about it. So what does he do? He remains distant. He remains unaffected. He remains aloof. His response is passive. Why is he passive? Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine you, um, you're going home for dinner and you've got your kids with you. Or, or, or you've, got, you've got your nephews or nieces. And imagine they're around about that, that really annoying age when you take them into the shop. They just want everything. So you say to them, right, we need to get home. We've got 10 minutes to get home. We're going to have spaghetti bolognese tonight. So I'm just going to get the ingredients and then we're going to go in the shop. We're going to pay for it and we're going to get home. And then you can have a treat after dinner. So you take your kids in. I'm speaking from experience here. Can you tell? You take your kids in. You say, right, I need spaghetti. I need meat. I need the vegetables, some garlic bread, and uh, or something to drink. Let's, let's go buy that. So come on, kids. Let's go. And then, because it's Easter time, you walk past one of the ends of the aisles, which is covered in Easter eggs, and your children notice the Easter eggs, and they stop in their tracks. No, no, no. You say to them, we're not going to have these Easter eggs. Just keep going by. I know they're cheap, but we're going to get our ingredients. You can have your treats after dinner. But they're not going to buy that, are they? No, 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 no. We want these. Please buy us this. This is what we want. And, th- and then, and then the, the commotion of your two kids start to, starts to rise. They start to, to, to make a fuss. They start to cry. Maybe one of them goes face first onto the floor and starts whacking the floor. And then everybody around you starts to look at you. Oh, that person can't control their kids. Look at those children. Wow. Look at that parent. He doesn't know what he's doing. You can tell I'm speaking from experience here. So, 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 and then, and then, and then you're faced with a decision. I can give in to their demands and I could keep the peace. If I give in to their protests, I will be able to maintain peace. There'll be social order and I can save face and people won't think I'm a silly parent. Or I can stand my ground and say no, endure the wrath of my children, get the stuff, pay for it, go home and they have their treat after they've finished their dinner. We all know what it's like. If you've had kids, you know what it's like to be in that place. I think Pilate's in such a similar position. He's got these demanding, childish, religious leaders around him. Let's get rid of this guy, Jesus. Let's shut this man up. Pilate's just like, what have I got to do to keep the peace here? Oh, these religious leaders, have I just given to their demand? And not do what's right. Not do the right thing, the hard thing, which is actually weigh the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Not face that. Because I can't face the implications to that. That means I can't keep people happy. So, avoid that. Give in to their demands. So Pilate is passive because he wants social order. Now let's see this third authority Jesus is brought before. Verse 6 in chapter 23. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. 
And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So Herod is going to be in Jerusalem because it's Passover. Herod is the king of the Jews at that particular time. Now, Herod is known, much like the other Herods in the Bible, for being someone who is absolutely bent, obsessed with meeting his own carnal fleshly pleasures. Herod is known for being a guy who steamrolls anybody who gets in the way of his wants. Herod is known to be a guy who just follows the whims of his desires and his carnal wants at any given moment. He's a guy who just wants his wants. He's what we would call a hedonist. He's someone who's pursuing his own pleasure. And anybody is going, anybody who gets in the way is going to be flattened because he's going to make sure he gets his wants met. That's what Herod is all about. Now let's see his reaction. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he longed, desired to, had long desired to see him because he has heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length and he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, here we go, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked them. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. But Herod's reaction is mockery. It's contempt. To dress him up in some kind of fake kingly outfit. I mean, Herod's not like the council who's aggressive. He's not like Pilate who's passive. But Herod's response is mockery. It's ridicule. It's scoffing. It's jeering. It's laughing at Jesus. Now, why is Herod responding like that? Well, because he wants his wants. And if Jesus is the son of God, then one of the ripples is that he doesn't find his satisfaction in the things of this world. He's going to have to find his satisfaction somewhere else in the person of Jesus. Let me illustrate it like this. I love, one of my favorite foods is really stodgy, messy chocolate cake. Um, I love it when it's heated up. And with some good, high-quality Cornish clotted cream ice cream on top. So it just starts to melt. And I love the, the hot and the cold in that dish. And I love it. Nobody's going to take that away from me. That's, that's going to make a good day if I get to eat this kind of stuff. Now imagine I'm scrolling through Facebook and somebody has shared an article that says, New research, stodgy chocolate cake with ice cream is really, really bad for you and might kill you. Don't eat it because there's a a compound created between the chocolate and the ice cream that's really, really bad for you. Don't eat it anymore. Uh, What am I going to think to that? I've got two options. Either I'm like, oh, I better listen to this. These scientists and these dietitians, they know what they're talking about. Or I can say, no, no, I want my chocolate cake. And they don't know what they're talking about. It's just another fad. It's just another, some kind of research that doesn't really fly. So what, what can I do at this article? I can laugh at it, can't I? I can mock it. I can say, I, <laughs> I'm not going to buy that because they, they just have no idea. I'm, I'm going to keep eating this, this dessert whenever I like. So what's, what's Herod doing? He wants his wants. He wants his desires meant. He wants his flesh to be satisfied on any given day, whatever it happens to be. Just follow those whims of what he wants. And Jesus, the Son of God, comes in. What's one of the ripples? You can't satisfy yourself in that kind of stuff. There's only one place you can fully satisfy yourself. So you see what's going on with these three authorities. We have the council, aggressive. Jesus being the son of God, the ripple they see is that he is in control, not them. Pilate's passive. Why? Because he wants social order. 
He can see that following Jesus and giving in to Jesus' witness that he is the son of God means that he can't keep everyone happy. He can't be a people pleaser. And then Herod, mockery, ridicule. Why? Because he can see that Jesus would take away his pursuit of his pleasures on any given day. Now you're asking the question, what's that got to do with us? I mean, we're a million miles away from a Jewish council. And we're certainly not like Pilate and we're not like Herod. What's that got to do with us? And I think it's this. That each authority is a magnification of the human heart. Each authority is a window, an insight into the human condition. Now, now think about that. You, you, you're just responding. Now, James, James, I've been in church all my life. Uh, I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. I submit to Jesus. I know he's the son of God. Are you telling me I'm like the council? I'm aggress- aggressive towards Jesus? Are you saying that? Or am I like Pilate and I'm passive and distant and unmoved by Jesus? Or are you saying I'm like Herod and, and I mock Jesus and I scoff him and I jeer at him? No. But let's look at the other angle. We are like the council because we want to be in control. And we are like Pilate because we are inherent people pleasers. And we are like Herod because we just want our wants met. And we don't want the life of Jesus Christ to challenge our wants, heaven forbid. Now think about this. You might look at yourself and say, I fit one of these categories, two of them, all of them. I mean, how many times in our life are we looking for that control and we're straining for it? I'm, I'm the boss of my money. I'm the boss of my property. I'm the boss of my achievements. I'm the boss of my house, my time, my space. I'm the boss of my own destiny, and I will not give up my right to self-determination. I am going to fulfill myself. Well, we're an awful lot like the council just there. Because Jesus, Son of God, steps in, drop that stone into our lives. What's one of the ripples? We're not as in charge as we always think we are. Actually, he is. And, And maybe we're like Pilate. I want to try and keep everyone happy. Heaven forbid the witness of Jesus Christ in my life upsets somebody. I need to please everyone. I've got to keep everyone happy. I've got to do what it takes to make sure that everybody around me is pleased. And we end up being dictated by people's opinions about us. We end up living for people's demands, for people's opinions, for people's praise, for the affirmation. Heaven forbid the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God means that we seek to please him and not people. And then then we have Herod. We're like that too. I don't want Jesus to touch my wants. I am going to satisfy myself. I know know these material things only bring a temporary satisfaction, but there is something within me that just wants to go and find that satisfaction, whether it's in public or it's in secret. I'm going to go find that. But if Jesus is the Son of God, what happens? The ripple is that he's offering a different kind of satisfaction. You see, Jesus is offering a solution to each of these authorities they don't see. You can give up your control. You can give up this frenzied, irrational pursuit of Jesus to get him killed. And then he'll take charge. And you'll be freed from the weight and the gravity of having to be the author of your own destiny. And and then Jesus offers something different to Pilate. You don't have to please people anymore. You don't have to be constrained by what other people say. You don't have to be strangled by other people's opinions your whole life. But you live to please the Son of God. And Jesus offers something different to Pilate. Not just that temporary, material satisfaction that we all run towards. But to go to a fountain that doesn't run dry. 
to go to a place where you can find that deep-rooted rest and satisfaction in Jesus that you just can't find anywhere else. You see, in this story, there's a fourth authority, isn't there? And this fourth authority doesn't religiously manipulate people because he wants control. And this fourth authority isn't constrained by people's opinions because we know it's impossible to please everyone. And this fourth authority isn't pursuing his wants at the expense of everyone around him. This fourth authority is the one who stands before the others and says, you have said it so. You see, this fourth authority we see is the one who walks to the cross. This is the one who obediently lays his life down so that we might go free. You see, in Jesus' humility, he's exposing these other three authorities. In Jesus' self-subjugation, he's exposing the self-absorption of these other authorities. And Jesus is providing a different story, a different solution, a different narrative. Because all of these authorities have the stone dropped into their lives. Jesus is the Son of God. What are some of those ripples? You're not in control anymore. You don't have to please people. And you can find satisfaction in Jesus that you can't find anywhere else. What's our response? I think it's really simply this. It's obviously not to respond like these guys. In fact, ours isn't really a response. It's a receiving. It's a seeing It's an acknowledging. It's a recognizing. Jesus is the Son of God. And that's going to have ripples for the rest of my life. Hey, let's pray together and then we'll sing our last song. Lord, we are are thankful for your word that tells us the story of how Jesus went to the cross and faced the rejection along the way. And Lord, maybe we're seeing that something in each authority is exposing something within our hearts. That we're clamoring for control. That we're constrained to people pleasing. Or that we're just giving in to the temporary lusts of our bodies. But Lord, help us to see by your Holy Spirit that Jesus offers an alternative. Where we step down from control. And that's a good thing for us because the weight of our destiny is removed from our shoulders. And that we can step away from trying to please people and please you alone. And that we can find a satisfaction that goes way deeper than anything that this world offers. Help us to see. Help us to behold. Help us to recognize. Help us to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. And we're praying in his name. Amen.